0: Well, good morning, Sanctus Church. So glad that you're joining us here, whether at Ajax, Bowmanville, Port Perry, Pickering, or beyond. And welcome to week four in our mini series out of this ancient, very relevant, very challenging book called Jonah. As we've been going through it, the feedback across our whole community from skeptics and seekers and believers has been actually quite significant because I think we've all been sort of taken back at the relevancy of this book. I don't know if you've been with us, but let me do the, the summary of what, where we've been. God calls Jonah, Jonah runs from God, Jonah's thrown into a raging sea, Jonah sits in a fish, the fish throws up Jonah, Jonah is saved, and Jonah then obeys and goes and proclaims God's coming judgment on this city called Nineveh, which we've learned, of course, is a dangerous, terrorist-like state, and then God gives mercy. Over and over again, what we have seen about God himself is this. God is not just holy or God is not just love. One of these things is not underneath the other. He is holy love at once. And over and over again, we have been struck and seen that God's draw is to mercy, to compassion, even towards a group of people that were violent and angry and sexually and relationally sinful and were involved in oppressing and killing many others. They were wholly ignorant of God and his ways. And now as we've been walking as a community through the story of the Ninevites and the Assyrians, we know the gravity of this. Nineveh, the great capital of the Assyrian empire is like I shared, (coughs) nothing but a terrorist state. Jonah went to his ethnic enemies to his oppressors, to the most hated yet most powerful people in the known world at the time, those who had the nuclear codes of the time. And he came and he preached God's judgment against them and said God's judgment was coming. And then last week, as we read this very famed ancient story, what happened was actually one of the most amazing responses to preaching in history. Jonah's enemies... Those with all the power, those known for profound, systematic, organized violence, those who were famed for oppression and had a gluttony for blood, those who never should have known God suddenly turned and responded to the message of Jonah. So we think coming the end of chapter four, Jonah would be like, this is amazing, job accomplished. God, you're so amazing and I'm pretty amazing too because I'm like a missionary and I went to the people who didn't know you and now they've changed and my preaching's pretty epic. I mean, this is one of the best responses in history. Nope, not at all. Jonah, as we've already seen, loves his country more than he loves the world. And when his enemies turned and God's mercy was given to them, his reaction was this, I feel betrayed, I feel used, I feel like a fool and I hate all of this. Now again, why the response? Why this coming anger? Well, first, Jonah had made the Jewish relationship with God an idol because God's love and ongoing forgiveness he believed should be theirs and theirs alone. And remember, this is the way we sort of bring this to life in our time. This would be like Hitler and his whole political machinery and all the key leaders and actually the whole nation in 1942, having a Jew come to Berlin and proclaim God's wrath and they actually believe him and they repent and they forgive each other and actually find God's forgiveness... But since it's 1942, they've already invaded multiple countries. They've already killed hundreds of thousands or maybe millions already. A holocaust has begun. They have killed, maimed, and raped, and destroyed. And now God, in the middle of that, lets them off the hook. And Jonah says, this is not right. Jonah, by chapter 4, has waited and waited for judgment, and nothing took place. No plagues, no fire from heaven, no invading army, nothing. And this mercy threatened, undermined, shocked, broke his view of God's justice. If God forgives people like this, then God, you're lowering yourself. You're cheating yourself. See, Jonah feels wounded. Jonah feels perplexed. Jonah even feels undone. So after one of the greatest moves of God in history, what we would use in church terms, a real ongoing, not just revival, but awakening, one of the greatest responses to preaching ever, it reads like this in Jonah 4.1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and he became angry. It actually reads in the original text, he is furious. His mind is filled with words a man of God should not entertain. I guarantee you his face was flushed red, his pace frenetic and irritated. His anger, though, did not move him from the posture of prayer. Now now let's remind ourselves, let's not forget. God himself had the right to be angry and was angry and did hate the nation's sin. Remember what the king actually said when they started to repent in Jonah 3.9. Who knows? God may yet relent and and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so we will not perish. God was rightly angry. They broke God's law and God, who is a judge, declared them guilty. They deserve to go to jail. But that's only part of the story, See, Jonah only likes God as holy and God as judge, but he does not also want God as mercy and God as compassionate. He wants the fullness of God, holy love, towards his own people, but not all people. And he knows the wholeness of God. He knows the fullness of God, and he was always afraid that God in his entirety would spill over to his enemies. It's actually what scares him most, that actually God might treat his ethnic enemies like God has treated him and his family. I mean, he knew God so well. I mean, what do we read in, in Micah 7:18? how God treats his own people? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of your inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You love it. So now Jonah has it out with God. Verse two, he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish, southern Spain. I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, who relents, a God who relents from sending calamity. In other words, Jonah is saying to God, are you serious? Of course you're serious. My worst fears have come true. I am disgusted at you, God, that you'd ask me to talk to those people. I cannot even stomach this. Why do you think I ran to Spain in the first place? I hate these people. And yes, I was afraid for my life, but more than personal danger or even more than they're not Jews and they shouldn't know God, they are evil. They don't deserve your love and your forgiveness. And even deeper, Jonah, I guarantee he was thinking, this is bad for your reputation, God. God, you've lost your mind. What about holiness? What about justice? What are you gonna do with this? I love Tim Keller, the great leader in, in Redeemer Church in New York, thinking about Jonah's attitude and reflecting when he wrote this in Jonah's word. I, I just knew you might do something like this, God. These people are so evil and they're only changed now because they're scared. They're mere, they merely promise to start changing and then you bestow mercy on them for that, it's good that you're a God of mercy, but this time you've gone too far. Here's the amazing thing. Jonah accuses God of being good, but good to the wrong people. I knew that you were gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now this, by the way, is one of the greatest creedal statements of God found in the Old Testament. This description, Jonah did not invent. It was used time and time again in the liturgy of Israel and usually was exclusively spoken in and over God's own people, the Hebrews, the Jews. But now he's extending it to violent idol worshipers. Now, this confession, like I said, is given time and time again. Right after the people of God came out of Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness and God encountered them and, and Moses was getting the Ten Commandments, the people of God rebelled against God and decided to worship the gods of Egypt and made a golden calf. And Moses comes down and he breaks the 10 commandments and said, how could you do this? And near the end of it, it says in Exodus 34, 6, and God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, ready? The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Joel The great prophet Joel, saying that judgment was coming on God's people, still says there is time, it doesn't need to happen. And what does Joel say? Joel 2.13, Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Time and time again, the psalmists, like David, point this out. Psalm 103.8, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so as far as he re- he's removed our transgressions from us. So, so, so Jonah knows this about God. Jonah knows God loves extending mercy to people who don't deserve it. But now this love and this forgiveness has extended beyond God's people to God's enemies. Now there's more power, and you're gonna take notes for Connect Group or for your own thinking, Write down the phrase gracious and compassionate because those two phrases here are only used for God in the Bible. Compassionate means tender in affection. Gracious means merciful. He favors others. Now here's the wild thing I didn't know. This word gracious is connected to another word in Hebrew meaning the womb in a woman. In other words, it almost has overtones of a mother loving a child. And then it says, God is slow to anger. Is anyone thankful this morning God is slow to anger? He does not, this is important. God does not delight in punishing the wicked. He does it because he's just, but it's not what his heart wants to do. And he's abounding in love. This word love is the word hesed. We talked about this before. It's marital love. It's vow keeping love. It's real love. And Jonah says, no, (laughs) no to all of this. These people have committed war crimes and and mass killings and they oppress your people and they hate your word and they break all your laws sexually and relationally. They're dangerous and they're rebellious. Where is your justice? Where is your protection? I cannot trust you with my people's future. Uh, uh, If you forgive them, I mean, where's the deterrent? Fine. Now, O Lord, take away my life for it's better for me to die than live. Like a child yelling an exaggeration over my dead body, kill me now. But what is so shocking is in this very short story, Jonah himself has been offered the forgiveness of God, but he cannot accept in his mind that his enemies get the same deal he's been given. Now, even more is going on than we miss. Many rabbis, Jewish commentators, actually see the real implications of this And this is what they wrote. Uh, The Jewish rabbis argued that the repentance of the Ninevites was a judgment on Israel because Israel at this moment was unrepentant. Jonah was therefore reasoning, literally in his head, since heathens are nearer to repentance, I might be causing Israel to be condemned. I would rather die. In other words, recognizing that the Ninevites might repent in response to God's word. Jonah is aware of the failure of his own people to repent. And as an Israelite, he would rather die than see non-Jews repent and shame his own people. Like looking in a mirror, he realizes what the so-called people of God have truly become. Well, what does God do? Kill Jonah? Remind him of all his own stuff? Turn him into a pillar of salt? Nope. God comes very close to Jonah and he just talks. It says, the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? So God poses a question. When God poses a question, it's always dangerous, by the way. Do you have any right to be acting like this? Just asking. Just asking. Well, Jonah, who knows God very, very well, probably more than most of us do, chooses not to talk back. He chooses not to respond. Just like a child who knows they're wrong, but won't admit it, he responds with what? Silence. But even more than that, shockingly, the text tells us he he won't only not respond to God. He literally walks away from God. Can you imagine? So Jonah went away and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat in the shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now, within Hebrew, this can literally read, he left through the east side. In other words, basically the idea is he entered the west side of the city, preached and talked for three days. He leaves the grand city. He goes to the other side and he's not in a hurry to go home. He's not in a hurry to leave everything because he's still hoping in his heart, since the 40 days is not up, that God's going to take these people out. So he waits for the show. But there's more. Do you see it? I'd never caught this. It says that he made himself a shelter. We're like, yeah, that makes sense. Well, no, 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 no. no. There's so much more going on here. The word shelter is the same word used for the shelters made by the Jews as they wandered in the desert for 40 years after Egypt. Later, God ordained a festival for the Jews called the festival or feast of booths or the festival of tabernacles. In other words, the festival of the shelters, celebrating God's provision in those years. Now, why does this matter? The shelter Jonah makes is the same one built to remind God's people of God's mercy when they rebelled against him. But more than that, the festival of booths is a reminder that God's mercy is going to be for everyone. We read this in Zechariah 14.6. Then the survivors of all nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year to year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of what? Tabernacles. So Jonah is literally sitting in the historical symbol of mercy and reminds the reader of God's heart for his people and all people. And as he's literally sitting in the physical reminder of mercy, he still wants nothing to do with what? Mercy. Well, God doesn't walk away from Jonah because God's compassionate and gracious to him too. And even though Jonah's walked away from God and maybe you've walked away from God, God's just going to keep showing up and smiling and talking to you. The shelter was rough and it wasn't amazing, so God decided to give him a double blessing. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. So God, who we founded as the God of the land and the sea, the God who controls the fish also controls the earth, and so he causes this plant to grow up. Now, by the way, if you are the technical historical person, this is actually a castor bean plant, if you care. It's known, you can find them today for growing shockingly in rapid ways, 8 to 12 feet tall, huge leaves, but we we find out that it's easily killed if you touch the stalk. The plant today is found in India and in the Middle East and in parts of Africa. So the vine helps with the shelter. Jonah's very happy. His mood changes. This is selfless joy over his own comfort. And now he's got a shelter and the huge plant to provide the cool and the hot Iranian sun so he can watch all these people get killed. He's very excited. Yet God is about to show him that his joy over personal comfort ha- has nothing. It's not even close to compared to the joy and love he should have over the salvation of mm, a whole city. So what does God do? I'm sure laughing. Excellent. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm. I love that a grub, you attack, which chewed the vine and what the great bean plant died. So, so God's not done. Back in chapter one, God sent a huge storm and then a fish. Now here in chapter four, he sends a worm and then another huge wind. It says, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. Isn't that, he's like, he provided it. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head and he grew faint and he wanted to die again. It would be better for me to die than live. He's hot, he's angry, he's lonely, he's tired, he's sunburned, it's moving to sunstroke, he's exacerbated by the loss of the plant, and he's full of anger that God still has not taken out these people, and he just wants to die. Jonah's love for life and God shrivels like the plant. Just kill me now. And God says to Jonah, do you have the right to be angry about the vine? Just asking. I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, But you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or even make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. I mean, you didn't tend it, you didn't make it grow. I did. It was never yours in the first place. I love when another person wrote this. Let's analyze your anger. Jonah, it represents your concern over your beloved plant, I see. But what did the plant really mean to you anyway? I mean, your attachment to it couldn't be very deep at all for it was here one day and it was gone the next day. Your concern is dictated by, hmm, uh, yes, self-interest, not by, oh right, genuine love. You have never had the devotion of a gardener. You feel bad as you do, but what would you expect the gardener to feel like? who tended it and planted it and watched it grow only to see it die. See, Jonah, here's my point. This is how I God feel about Nineveh. Only so much more. All those people, even all the animals, the cattle I made them. I cherished them all these years. Let me tell you, Jonah, Nineveh has has caused me no end of effort, but it still means the world to me. Your pain is nothing compared to mine when I contemplate their destruction. God points out Jonah's proud and angry posture had led him to have more pity for a small shrub that was here today and gone tomorrow than a whole city of people made in the image of God. See, Jonah, whether he'd know it or not, and Jonah had the word of God, and Jonah knew God, and Jonah Jonah heard the voice of God, and Jonah was in the proximity of God, and Jonah was close to God, but Jonah, if all of that around him still moved from thinking of these people made in the image of God to actually they're sort of subhuman. Well, then it happens. God now points Jonah to look westward to the great walls of the city, and then in Hebrew, it is so shocking to hear this out of God's voice because it says that God speaks with compassion and literally you can read it, God with a choked up voice. It says, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and even cattle, lots of them. Should I not be concerned about this great city? That word concern is compassion. And it literally means to grieve, to have your heart broken already, to literally not cry, to weep over it. This is amazing. God is saying, should I not? Can you not see Jonah, my ambassador prophet, that I am not just heartbroken? Do you not understand that I, the eternal one, uncreated, who is holy, who has been deeply offended by these people's wickedness in every direction, I'm up here in heaven weeping over them. Jonah, they can't even tell their right hand from their left. They're spiritually blind, left to false gods. They use their own strength. They think that sex in multiple directions and money and power is what life is about. They're gluttons for violence. They think power is what life is about and nothing more. They don't know me. They don't know salvation. I've given so much mercy to you, my people. Why can't I do it for them too? Once again, God is undoing Jonah's wrong view. See, God did not choose the Jewish nation to be his people at the expense of all of us. Actually, God chose the Jewish people, thank you God for doing it, and walked with them and gave them Torah and gave them the prophets and gave them his spirit and gave them their temple and gave them everything. Why? For the sake of the world. They were supposed to show everyone who God was. Isaiah 6.9, I will also make you a light, Israel, for non-Jews, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jonah, you think that all I have given you was just for you? No, you're literally endowed with all of this, so every person you hate can meet me too. But you know the shocking thing about Jonah? It ends with a question, not a period. God says to Jonah, don't you see? And we do not have Jonah's response. I know so many of you virtually and then in our sites join us and you are genuinely part of our community and you're not Christians. That's what I love about this church. that so many people coming here who are seeking or skeptical. Uh, you might have the title Christian, but you're not a follower of Jesus or actually you are not part of our faith. And the very first thing I would like to say to you is, well, what is the God of Jonah who sound found fully in the face of Jesus by his Spirit, saying to you today as a seeker, as a skeptic, as a wanderer, as a wanderer, well, here's what God says to you. You are Nineveh. Every human being, the most devout spiritual person on earth, the most devoutly religious person on earth, and the most atheistic and secular person on earth, every one of us is in the same boat. Every human being cannot truly tell their right hand from their left. We are blind spiritually, unable to connect with God. And actually, by the way, God's judgment on us is real because like we found out, when we became sinners and broke God's law, we attacked God himself because God's law stems from who he is. If Nineveh had not repented and admitted their sin, God would have judged them because God is holy love. And what we need to recapture in our culture is this. We are not the determiner of what is right and wrong. God is the determiner of what is right and wrong. Because God is God and we are not. And God has said certain things are sinful and certain things are not. And all of us in this room and every room I'm speaking to and everyone who's listening, all of us have broken God's heart and God's law. And if we do not turn to God and ask for his mercy, then we remain under his rightful wrath. Because we actually broke the law, and as a judge, he says, you are really guilty. What's going to come at the end of time is this. It reads like this in Revelation 20. We're going to talk about this a lot more next week. Revelation 20:11. then I saw a great white throne, and him who seated on it, and the earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Oh, and another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done recorded in the books and the sea even gave up their dead and death and Hades gave up the dead and each person was judged according to what they had done and then death and Hades was thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. See, here's what we need to recapture whether you're a seeker or skeptic or Christian. God is holy love and God loves us not just the way we are, like I said last week. God does not love us just the way we are. God loves us despite the way we are. And God, because he is who he is, though we have rebelled and attacked him, so loves us, he gives us a way home. Because God is what? He's compassionate. Some of you listening to me don't believe this. No, no, let me assure you of this. God is tender towards you. God is gracious and favors you despite your sin. God is angry, but slow in his anger. He does not think or delight in the idea of you going to jail for what you've done spiritually. God is abounding in love. God wants to be a perfect spouse to you. And the mercy we see in Jonah is fulfilled in the ultimate sense in the person and work of who? Jesus. That is why before eternal Revelation 20 judgment, God has given us as a human family the moment of restoration. This is why Peter wrote this in 1 Peter three eighteen. For Jesus died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. If you have never acknowledged your sin before God and never admitted that actually you are under the just wrath of God, then today is the day to humble yourself and admit you're only human. You're only made in his image. You, you actually are not in control. He is in control. And say, I'm, I've sinned and I need to repent. And actually, most of my life I thought I was fine or I didn't think I was fine. But actually say, God, I want to know your compassion and your grace and your abounding love. And actually, I'm gonna ask Jesus, the ultimate expression of God's mercy, to make me clean. And now the, very, the most famous verse in the Bible makes sense. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in Jesus will not die or perish but have eternal life. Oh, God did not send his Son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe. Stands condemned already because they do not believe in the name of God's one and only son. See, the mercy of God is found in Jesus because Jesus died in our place and took the right wrath of God and everything we've done. So when you trust in Jesus, actually the Father sees you through Jesus and his mercy is given to you. There's an old Anglican prayer, and if you've never said it, you should just say it if you're not a Christian. Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Christ, have mercy. That's it. Now, many of us are followers of Jesus and we would be the first to tell you we're not followers of Jesus because we think we're better or more moral or more righteous. We just said, God have mercy on us. What do we not just intellectually learn at the end of Jonah? What is, again, the God of Jonah found in Jesus by the Spirit saying to us, Sanctus Church, situated in the GTA in 2020? Well, I think the most obvious thing is we are called not to be like Jonah in so many ways. How do you become like Jonah? We become like Jonah when we forget what we've been saved from. When every single one of us forget that at one point we were all blind, under the just wrath of God, on our way to hell, separated from a God that we were meant to walk with, when we forget what God has done in us, over us, and through us, then we will become angry, resentful, confused, and bitter, and it will replace faith, love, and hope. When we forget his mercy extended to us, we become hard. One of the best things we could all do this week in our connect groups and in our own walk with Jesus is to stop and ask God through his Holy Spirit and his word to give us a view of actually what he did for us. Only when we see what we were saved from personally will we begin to see our enemies not as enemies anymore, nor subhuman or political rivals, but we will see them like we used to be lost, and we will want them to know the love we've experienced. God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, we who have experienced those four things, if we for a moment forget that has been given to us as gift, as grace, as undeserved, we will become like Jonah so quickly and fold our hands and say, take out those people. Here's a deeper question. When was the last time you as a Christian, if you are one, have wept over the lostness of your neighbors, friends, family, and this great city that we live in? It says here in Jonah that God had compassion. God grieved. It literally says in the text that God wept over Nineveh. You know, it's interesting, right at the near end of Jesus' life, Jesus knowing what is about to be done to him by his own people, and of course, the world, says this in Luke 1941, as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and what? He wept over it. I learned in the last few weeks that if you read the Gospel systematically, Jesus cries 20 times for every time he laughs. Now, this is not saying Jesus was out of control. This was not saying Jesus was depressed or having mood swings. This is not saying that Jesus couldn't have fun. (laughs) This is revealing the true nature of God and the true nature of our world. Now, I know some of you aren't criers. That's fine. And some of you are criers. You know who you are. And I'm in between. It depends on the moment. But if you have never wept, let me put it a different way. If you have never been deeply moved over the lostness of people, if you have never sat by yourself or in community and thought about 6.2 million people from the whole world in the GTA and realized where they're going, then you have not fully entered into God's heart. We love God. We want to be like him, fully devoted followers of Jesus. I'm not saying we need to be crying all the time. No, But if you have never been moved to the point where you've been undone by the God who weeps, you actually don't know God's heart yet. One of the best things you could do this week is not try to conjure it up. Don't put, like, onions under your eyes. Just say to God, remind me of what you've done for me. Some of you have been Christians for, like, 50 years. And you've forgotten. Some of you became Christians at your three. Like, I don't even remember when I was blind. He'll tell you. But every one of us needs to say to God, God would you actually let me enter into your sorrow for the city? You'll never be the same. When you see how lost you were, and when you enter into the living heartbeat of God, then what I'm about to say next will make sense. By the way, what I'm about to say, this is the moment I should take my glasses off and you all should lean in. The great calling of the church is to reach out and to sacrifice comfort and status quo. God has already said in this church he is going to do profound things and we're already seeing it. We as a church have been on a shocking journey that none of us never thought would happen. And we now, at this edge, as we've entered into plan two, six new locations, all this stuff, we know instinctually more is afoot. So here's what I need to say to the generation of people that make up this church now. Not those who made up the church two years ago or 10 years ago. We who make up Sanctus Church now. The comfort of what we know now, the comfort of what was, or the comfort of how we do church now, or the comfort of the Christian holy huddle. Look, it has to be on the table again. One wrote, there is a Jonah that lurks in the heart of every Christian. Smug prejudice, empty traditionalism, exclusive solidarity. The vines that are a threat to this church, again, is we like this type of church building, or we like these types of seats, or we like that our church is at four sites, and I like a church that's small or large, or fill in all the blanks. Let me just say this. I need to declare this again. We will not let comfort stop the work of God in this church ever, ever. And as God is doing this new thing, God wants to undo, like I said, smug prejudice, empty traditionalism, exclusive solidarity. And God is continually asking our church to pray for those that are enemies, to see our city through God's eyes. And so I just want to say, let us not stop or shrink back when in the next few months and years, God comes close to us again and asks for us to participate with him to see Nineveh come home. Let me just bring this home very quickly. Easter is coming in the next few weeks. Literally, who are you praying for and who will you invite? Alpha is relaunching. Who will you bring? Who will you take out for coffee? Who will you share the good news with? Like, be ready to be used by God because God's heart is to see all of Nineveh come back to him. So at this moment, why don't we stand, all sites, all locations, and let us ask for these unnatural gifts And see what he does, not just today, but forward. Number one, God, many of us gathered here today don't know you, or we knew about you, or we grew up in families that did know you. And at this moment, we are realizing how big and powerful and holy you are and how lost we are. So some of us just need to pray this, and it's very simple. You just need to say, first and foremost, these words. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy I need the mercy of God found in Jesus. I repent of my sin like Nineveh did. I want to come home and be your child. I need your compassion, your mercy, your graciousness, your slow anger and your abounding in love to now affect me. For us who have experienced that, here's what we pray. One, God, if the shadow of Jonah is in our life or in our church, point it out so we cannot avoid it. Many of us have forgotten what we've been saved from, so we're asking at this moment, Lord, supernaturally show us, not just the items we've been saved from, show us actually what you've saved us from in entirety. I actually would pray uh, that you'd give people visions in our church of actually how significant the judgment and mercy of God has been for them that they don't even understand. Uh, Second, we wanna take a moment, and many of us sitting here have never, wept over the city. We have never, some of us are like, God, I'm not even that emotional type of person. But we've never experienced your heart for the lostness of the city that we love. So Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit across our church to actually have a moment where we are undone by the lostness of our city. Actually let us enter into the weeping of God. And lastly, we again just wanna say, Jonah was of its status quo and comfort and what was. And if you could just put your hands up for this, if you belong to this church, we just wanna to say to you again, God, we are your church, we owe nothing. You are the head of this church, Jesus. You use this church any way you want to reach any group you want in any moment you want. We don't wanna get in the way, just come and do the unnatural among us. And we want, unlike Jonah, to see Nineveh come home and be saved. All glory be to God the Father who is working out his purposes. All glory be to Jesus Christ who died in our place and prays perfect praise, prayers for us is our high priest and our friend and our brother. All glory be to the Holy Spirit who empowers us, who unites us, convicts us of sin, reminds us of our hope and tells us resurrection is true. Oh God, God triune God, come and do the unbelievable among us we ask. Amen, amen, amen.